development of folks uh, within different organizations. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on being around for 15 years. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So uh, what did you do before you actually started this consulting practice? So Mark, I was in a traditional business career prior to this. Uh, I had previously worked at Taco Bell Corp when it was owned by PepsiCo. So for many years, I was a strategic planner. Back in the day when Taco Bells were trying to figure out how to get themselves into malls and gas stations and convenience stores. So it was part of the team who conceptualized how do we, you know, really grab share of stomach wherever the consumer. <laughs> uh, and so that was a great ride. And then for many years, I worked at Booz Allen and Hamilton as a classic management consultant where I advised companies on growth and uh, pricing strategies. And then at some point just realized that my first love has always just been about people and uh, really wanting to work with people closely. So made the switch over to becoming an executive coach. Uh, congratulations in 15 years, 25 employees, you must be doing uh, something right, especially in these difficult times. What's the, best, uh, what's the best and most challenging parts of being an executive coach? I would say the best part is, again, just the people that you get to know and work with. I've been so blessed and just feel grateful for the chance to meet people like everybody joining us today, right? Just trying to make a difference, do good work, bring their best self to their families and to their teams and their employees. Um, and just getting to be a part of that journey, especially as folks look to transform their companies or their teams or to grow their business, how do they keep growing and transforming themselves? So getting to be part of that, part of another person's journey is definitely the best part of the job. And what's the worst part of it? You know, there's challenges, right? Where even as we've all been facing this crisis where you uh, spend days really listening to people's stresses. Sometimes leaders can't publicly share how they're feeling. So privately, you have to be able to shut the door and really hold a lot of space for other people's emotions. And so there are days where just working with somebody who uh, wants to do good and do right by others and seeing how hard they are on themselves can be a little challenging. I, I bet you this has probably been the most challenging time of your career. Yes, I will say helping others navigate the crisis while going through it yourself. So I would imagine for many folks tuning in, you are not only trying to lead your own teams, but you're trying to help yourself and your family navigate through it too. So this book couldn't have come out at a more perfect time, right? You know, it's so funny, Mark. Recently, I've had many companies reaching out asking for me to come speak about the leader you want to be, but in a time of crisis. And right. so... I do think it, it puts that question to the forefront. So why did you write this book? I wrote the book because I think it just gave an opportunity for three things. Number one, with 15 years under our belt and thousands of leaders we had worked with, I felt like it was time to pause and think about what have we learned? What have been the common themes and patterns? And how do you integrate that and put that all into one place? And then the second thing was, was that even though we've grown to be a team of 25, I realized that we just weren't ever gonna be able to reach everybody or work with everybody ourselves. And so a book offered a chance to package and put together all the great tools and tips that we've learned from leaders out there and try to share that more broadly uh, in an easy format. Well, what did you learn from writing it? I learned that I don't have it all figured out at all. So for me, it was a very humbling experience at one point, uh, my publisher, Harvard Business Review, actually said, you know, would you be willing in the writing of the book to thread your own story throughout the book? So Mark, as you read, I tried to put in there all the times that I personally have struggled with, how do I keep growing a family? How do I keep growing a business when I know that I have my own days of stress and overwhelm? So it was uh, both a wonderful experience, but very humbling experience to try to dig deep around the authentic journey that I've, I've walked myself. I didn't like looking in the mirror so much at that book, you know, because there's a lot of things I'm like, oh my God, that's me, that's me. And, yeah. and some of it was not good me right. uh, that you have to keep working on. So in the book, you said there are five keys to leadership, purpose, process, people, presence, and peace. How did you come up with this? So the five P's, as you just named them, Mark, really emerged from three bodies of uh, work that we looked at. So the first was to say, again, across the 15 years, as we looked at the various leaders that we've coached and worked with, 
what were some common themes around that as folks stepped up into bigger roles or as folks found that their companies around them were growing, what were some commonalities across those things and could we bucket them into categories? So that was the first kind of body of work we looked at. And then the second body of work was just, you know, the good fortune of working with a publisher like Harvard Business Review, who sits on years and years and research and thought of other people. So we took a look at where were the trends and what they were hearing from readers around the types of areas that folks were struggling with. And then finally, when we all think about a best self, uh, the search for human mastery and potential has been around for thousands of years. And so we also took a look at things like, what did Buddha say? What did Aristotle say? What did high performance sports coaches say? And we found the five Ps were five doorways to back to our best self that seemed to come up over and over again every time the game around us changed or got bigger. Yeah, I, I noticed that and I really related to a lot of those things and I thought was interesting about the uh, different people that you brought in. There's an Indian philosopher that you quoted quite a bit throughout the book. I'm forgetting who that was, but it was, uh, they're very interesting. So is there, one, is there one P that's more important than the others? Because it seems to me that purpose might be the most important P. We did start with purpose because as you can imagine, the way we set our North Star in the compass and in the book, we define purpose as that at any given moment as a leader, um, you know, what is your highest value add and contribution now? And what are you passionate about and what gives you inspiration? So when you take contribution plus passion, to me, that equals purpose at any given time. And the key is that that evolves. So for everyone joining us today, if you think about even 10 years ago, how you would describe your value add and what you were passionate about, it's likely to have evolved and you might answer that question very differently now. And so that is really the core starting point. How do you reset that compass at each chapter of life or each time the company changes? And then from there, the other P's flow. Depending on what that purpose is, then you have to set up your process, your people, your presence, and even how you relate to yourself on the inside with regards to peace in accordance and in an aligned congruent way. Isn't it, for entrepreneurs, purpose drives everything. And, and for companies that hope to survive for the long term and maybe don't survive, like Wang Laboratories doesn't exist anymore, many retailers, they lost at the top. They lost their purpose, right? The CEO yes. didn't know what the purpose of the business was. And maybe the board started hiring financial types and they had no purpose except for cutting this. But the leader didn't have a vision and therefore nobody else felt that there was anything that was driving them on a day-to-day -day basis. So yeah. that's got to be super important to keeping, especially during times like this. What, what are you telling your clients right now? What's the advice you're giving them to get through this? Yes, I, I mean, I think as you said, our purpose is a key piece of it, right? What's the North Star? At a time of crisis, prioritization and what are we prioritizing for is absolutely critical. I think second, it's important as leaders, again, to help uh, acknowledge with our workforce that, you know, I heard early in the early weeks of the crisis, folks described this as a roller coaster. Um, I'm hearing now in this last week, folks have described feeling like they're moving from an adrenaline filled sprint to now realizing we're in a marathon and really a longer road than folks imagined. And so I think recognizing that uh, the crisis has brought the human experience to the forefront and how do we as leaders acknowledge that for people, bring some empathy to that while helping people preserve their focus on where to spend their efforts and time and energy. So in the book, you talked about uh, there's two types of leaders. You start by talking about an A leader seems relaxed, balanced, and the B leader seems stressed out and temperamental. But further, you go to say that most leaders are a combination of both. Explain in a little bit more detail the two types and how does one be more relaxed and an accessible leader? Yes, absolutely, Mark. Um, you know, what's funny is, again, leader A and leader B is somewhat autobiographical. Uh, and for all of us, you know, tuning in right now, we all have a part of ourselves that's leader A mode, right? Where think about the last time you faced a challenge where somehow you were able to ride the wave, not meet that moment with resistance, and to really bring your full inner resource and capability with some ease and effectiveness. And that's how I'm defining leader A. And we all also have a leader B mode, 
where you almost wake up in the morning and you know somehow, wow, I've woken up on the wrong side of the bed here today. And for some reason, uh, we feel a lot of resistance to what's happening. We feel like we're swimming against the current and certainly we aren't bringing our best self. And Mark, one of the trends that I've noticed is that often our colleagues get to see more of leader A, but often it's our families and loved ones who come to know leader B very intimately. And so I think if you were to ask my husband and 14 year old son what it's been like to be sheltered in place with me for eight weeks, they could tell you a lot about what my own personal leader B looks like. So <laughs> kind of drew that distinction for all of us to recognize that as humans, we have both sides of ourselves, and how do we stay aware of that? How do you, how do you control that B side? that it doesn't become the evil twin. Yeah, it's a little bit, again, so step one is definitely self-awareness, right? And a little humor around this, that we all have leader A and leader B. And the question that I often ask my clients and myself is, where is my center of gravity, A or B? And if I'm knocked off my game and I'm riding down that slippery slope of B, am I able to catch it? Do I know my own cues? And if I see myself heading down that path, do I have a constructive way to gently and with some self-compassion bring myself back to what I know to be my best self? Well, I think that's a problem that a lot of uh, high voltage uh, leaders struggle with, especially ones who sometimes don't even have a filter for how they manage themselves. I work with family business and uh, my client has built, one of my clients has built a very successful national company and her people cringe anytime something goes wrong because she goes nuclear. What advice would you give her and those closest around her? Because she's self-sabotaging her own business. I mean, there are, there are times that the, her top people just say, ah, oh, you know what, she's a sweet person, but I can't stand these outbursts any, anymore. It, it's t putting my own stomach in knots. So what do you say to her, the leader, what she needs to do? And what do you say to the people who report directly to her who are taking the run of this? I would say to her first and foremost, you know, oftentimes when we're right at that edge where we can go nuclear, my, my guess is she's probably the hardest person on herself to begin with. And so number one, I would say to cut herself a break and to celebrate that it sounds like she's built a very successful business. So that's number one. And then second, it sounds like the business has reached a point where she needs to realize that as the founder and the uh, leader of that organization, she has a really big ripple effect. And so the shadow that she casts doesn't just impact her, it now impacts many, many other people. And so the why behind it is that then that cascades into everyone else having a bad day, and then that's going to impact her business results. And then the third thing would be working with her to say, as she feels her temperature rising, helping her find new ways to like get ground, come back to center, either step away or come up with a more constructive response. Sometimes they don't even know it. I had a, a client and I did a 360 for him as part of the uh, strategy about how to grow the business. And he was surprised to hear that his top five executives who reported to him took his temperature every time he walked into the building to see if they could tell him bad news. Right. And if they found that he wasn't in a good mood, they held it back from him. And when he found out that that was the case, he was in a state of shock because he had no realization that that's how he was perceived. And it was actually hurting his business that the fact that people couldn't express what was really going on for fear that he wasn't calm all the time. So that could be very detrimental to the business. A hundred percent. And I think sometimes it takes something like a 360 to hold up that mirror. And in some ways, um, you know, his surprise often taps back to just a humility that, wow, my bad day could have that kind of impact on other people. So I think sometimes a leader is stunned by, you know, I didn't realize I was that guy. I've become that guy or gal that people are reading into if I have a furrowed brow on my face. You know, your, your uh, leader may just be thinking, wow, I'm just having a bad day or that passed without realizing they are now of a stature and of a position that folks really read into everything. And in some ways you're under a microscope. Well, what do you say to a boss like that? How do you, you know, somebody reports to them, how do you go without getting fired or them holding it against you? 
Right. It is tricky in terms of how to best manage up in that kind of situation. I think one, as the person on the receiving end of that, we need to be able to witness it without taking it personally. So step one is often when someone's behaving that way, we really take that personally. Instead of saying, wait a minute, the boss is having a bad day. They're human. And in fact, they are pretty consistent with other people in that behavior. So it's probably not about me. And then how do I bring things to the table that really speak to and frame what's best for the business or what's most effective or that you have their back in trying to bring them that kind of information? I was wondering this as I was reading the book, is there a difference between leaders 25 to 35 and those between 50 and 70? Is there a different style? If there's a different approach, you know, what does that look like from your own research and from what you've worked with? Yeah, I think, um, so I think that those age brackets do bring different life experiences from an age and stage perspective. So not to stereotype, but you know, as I kind of think anecdotally, the 25 to 35 bracket, most often I find the questions that they're asking, Mark, are, hey, how do I continue to build my skills? Many of them are in the process of starting to start families and build, build their home life. And so uh, the questions are more centered around building and working towards however they've defined a successful career. Those who are in the 50 to 70 range often have already had many chapters under their belt. They're often more seasoned and seniors. So the questions begin to shift from, you know, how can I build a certain capability to then the, the later stage folks asking, you know, what's my legacy gonna be? How can I mentor others? What's it mean to pay it forward? So the questions that they bring to the table and the lens with which they're thinking about their leadership does seem to shift. Uh, is there a difference in style between men and women? You know, it's so interesting. We've gotten that question many years and I've thought about this question deeply, especially when it comes to executive presence and style. And I would say, Mark, that on the whole, at least in our firm's data set, we find that stylistically, we have just as many men that orient us in one way as women. What we have found to be different, however, is the penalty. So research does support. So for those who are interested in this, Catalyst did a great study on this very question. And they found that for women, the penalty for playing in the extremes of style was, was uh, harder and bigger. So for women, if you find that you are uh, overly nice, if you will, or empathetic, you're gonna, you're gonna potentially bear a bigger penalty uh, than your male counterpart. As you look weak? Does that mean that you look weak? You may be described as more weak than a male counterpart. And conversely, if you are uh, in the more assertive, aggressive range, you may hear a different set of uh, descriptor words than you would your male counterpart. I find it always interesting when a lot of the companies I work with that women tell me they prefer to work for men, that the men are more direct, there's a lot less emotion with them. Is that a fair characterization or are, are they also not being very fair to women bosses? I think in the cases that you're describing, again, it's very specific. There's probably those situations where somebody has had that experience, but you almost wonder if that same bias carries through uh, even in the, the female gender. Right, of course. Yeah. One of the things I, I, uh, I think a lot of people may have watched, maybe you haven't had a chance to watch or even read about, is um, Michael jo the series on Michael Jordan that's been on ESPN, or possibly you've you know, read about Steve Jobs and how incredibly hard they were on people. Mm. And really uh, tyrannical and abusive, yet they are two iconic figures of the last half century. Were there great leaders or were they great leaders just gifted at what they do that people follow them or were there certain colleagues responsible for their success and balanced out their nasty streak? I mean, when I kind of look at Michael Jordan, he had some senior basketball players around there that kind of uh, let everybody else know it's okay. That's just Michael being Michael, but still not acceptable. And with Steve Jobs, he had Steve Wozniak and Tim Cook. Maybe we would never heard of either of these guys if, if their colleagues had decided they were going to take them out back and kick the crap out of them. <laughs> so uh, with these kinds of, uh, of leaders who think that they are really driving 
to success and find that that's okay to be uh, insulting and so forth, but because they have this certain kind of magic. What's your take on that? You know, Mark, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm definitely going to take note of that ESPN TV series, which I have not seen. Um, and, you know, just to be completely candid and truthful, I don't know a lot about Michael Jordan or Steve Jobs specifically. So I, I don't feel like I could address them with any kind of fairness or groundedness. Um, however, I can speak to more generally when we think about the population of leaders whose style is to be more tyrannical or even abusive, as you described. You know, I do think when you asked me earlier in this uh, uh, interview around some of the challenges of being an executive coach, I think it's disheartening when you do see a leader who is being abusive to others uh, still really succeeding. And that, that is, there is that dimension in business that does exist. And I think some of it is that some of the qualities of driving and getting the ball into the end zone or being visionary, you know, can often come with that same archetype. And so they bring a great strength. And um, oftentimes that same archetype is very good at managing up. And so those who are in positions to determine their future don't see that side of them. You know, so that is some of the unfortunate. I think in the long run though, for those leaders, you know, I, their followership is compromised. When you talk to folks in their organization, folks will tell you uh, that they lead by fear uh, that they avoid them at all costs, you know, so there's a real distancing effect. And if that leader has a colleague that others tend to turn to, you know, I just think as a leader for as, as hard as you work to, to suddenly realize that your behavior is leading others to want to avoid you is something to really pause and to think about. I, I had lunch with Steve Jobs in 1990. Uh, he was speaking in Pittsburgh and I was lucky to sit at the table with him. And I thought was he was super charismatic, super brilliant. I mean, it was like listening to Henry Ford talk about cars. It was just amazing. But then I watched as he, as he ended, his people either walked 10 steps in front or 10 steps behind him. So when he got in the car, I asked his people, why are you guys not even close to him? Because my own people would be walking with me. And they said, because we're afraid he's going to pick on us. So we stay clear of him. Wow. And I had a, 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 one of my students I taught to, uh, at Wharton and he worked for a very well-known Hollywood uh, star. And he said, everybody, when he walked in, just averted his gaze. Uh, but if it wasn't for his chief operating officer, they said, you probably never would have heard of this guy because the chief operating officer kept it. So somebody who is uh, that passionate and that driven to success is it smart for them to find somebody who kind of balances them out? You know, what should those leaders look for? Because they kind of kind of know. I mean, I, I met somebody who hired someone. He said, I know I am hard to work for. I know I'm hard to be around. So I hired this person. What do you advise these folks? I think in any case, if we ourselves are aware of an area that's not our highest strength, uh, and if for whatever reason, if, even if we've tried to work on it, it's, it's still not, you know, enough that there's nothing like building out a team and surrounding yourself with people to help, you know, bring a greater balance or a yin and yang, if you will, to the table. Uh, and really more with the spirit of how do I build a team of diverse people in terms of thinking, in terms of style and approach so that we can capitalize on everyone's strengths. Now that said, and this is a little bit of personal opinion, I am you know, not a big proponent of when you are in a position of authority, you know, carrying that to a point of toxicity or abuse. And I would still, like when I work with a leader and I see that behavior or I pick up on that during a 360, you know, it's a very direct and candid dialogue around what it, you know, we need to talk about what it means to be direct, but with respect. Right, and, and what's that respect piece look like? And I think it's just an important pause point and look in the mirror, who do you want to be? Do you want to be? If you want to be that fearful, tyrannical boss, then at least you're being congruent to your intention. But if that's not your intention, then we should address that and work on it. Don't you also find that those kind of bosses don't attract really smart people who will stay for the long run, that even if smart people come, 
they, they end up leaving, but the people who feel like they're treated fairly, they could even be paid less, will even do more and stay longer and be more committed. Absolutely. I mean, I think the leaders who bring that vision, passion, drive, but also a deep respect for their workforce and really believe in culture. I have seen organizations run through brick walls and do astounding things together. Uh, and those leaders also share that as part of their own legacy, there's nothing like receiving an email or a note from an employee who, said, who says, you've made a difference in my life. So I, I wonder this, what leaders have you observed or worked with that you are super impressed with them and, and why? Again, I, I again I can't disclose you know names or organizations, or but maybe from or, or what you've observed. Right, but from what I've observed, you know, I a couple of folks come to mind, and they they really bring that winning combination I just described, Mark. Um, you know, right now I can think of a CEO who uh, has very high standards of performance, runs at a very high pace with his organization. Uh, understands growth, manages the PL and cash, you know, the way that you would hope. But absolutely, whenever you talk to him, he will tell you our business's growth and results is a result of our culture and our people. And he truly believes that culture and a positive culture is his competitive advantage. And so when I see that combination of performance and people and the alignment of that, I can't tell you how excited and how much I can get behind somebody and just want to see them and their teams win. Uh, John Chambers, who was the chairman CEO of Cisco Systems, was one of our guests. And John Chambers attributed all their success to the culture. And that's why they went from 70 million to about 50 billion in sales. It's because it wasn't because I was so brilliant, but we had the right culture. And when we absorbed 140 other companies, they stayed and the people didn't leave because of the culture. So let's talk about taking care of yourself and your family. You write about the pitfalls of doing too much. How does one avoid that without feeling guilty? I always feel guilty. Like I feel like I should be doing so much more. Yeah, so again, you know, guilty is charged in terms of always being a little oversubscribed and not really matching what's realistic to capacity. So I think, again, number one, um, you know, if you look at some of the research, self-criticism takes an incredible toll on our minds and our bodies. There's a great New York Times article for those who are interested called Why We Should Stop Being So Hard on Ourselves." So number one, if you find yourself in a moment in time where you have too much on your plate and you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed, actually beating yourself up or feeling guilty about it is only going to make it worse. So I would say recognize the moment for what it is say, wow, I'm in a period of time where I'm oversubscribed, and then move towards constructive action. Number one, what things, what deadlines or things can I renegotiate? Ask for help. Who from my team can I delegate to? Who are some of my peers that I could reach out to for help? Um, how do I uh, not resist this moment of heavy workload? Let me methodically work through it, and then let me rethink how I triage my yeses and nos going forward. Uh, I've run a lot of startups myself, and I really relate to the example in the book of the leader who many times was physically there, but not mentally, which caused hurt feelings because I would ask questions of my kids that were already talked about already at the dinner table. How do you get aggressive, ambitious CEOs to be present? That is such a challenge when, especially I think, Mark, as your CEO or you're the founder and your uh, business in some ways, almost like one of your children. I know for me as a owner of a business that Paravis is, is, in addition to my son, something that I'm so passionate about that I'm thinking about it all the time. So for uh, those in that situation, it's really important to create what I call time zones and home zones. And I think right now during the crisis, as we're all sheltered in and work and life are blurring as they never have before, being really clear on what pockets of time in terms of time zones is work? What pockets of time is home? And being clear about that with everybody. And then home zones are, what part of your home are you gonna put your laptop or your cell phone so you're not tempted by the ding? So sometimes the temptation is so high, I literally have to like put the laptop or cell phone in a drawer, you know, walk out of my home office, shut the door, and before I head down to dinner and make that conscious pivot. Yeah, one time my uh, 
then wife took the phone from me and put it in the safety in a safe in a hotel and said either it goes in the safe or you got to go home right so uh, i had that so you talk about leaders who get frustrated because of all the meetings but uh don't feel a sense of accomplishment how, how do you deal with that Meeting fatigue is hard. I, I think I know right now I have leaders sharing that, especially since we're doing so much by video, it can feel like we're all sitting at our computers from morning to night. So again, um, number one, being uh, mindful and thoughtful towards transitions between meetings, maybe scheduling your meetings as 50 minute tranches so that you can take a 10 minute break to head downstairs or walk down the hall to get a glass of water. Um, another idea in the book is power hours. So being very clear with yourself, what are those pockets of time during the day where your thinking is the clearest and how do you block time for that on your calendar? Um, and look, sometimes that's gonna get overridden or overscheduled on top of, but without the block to begin with, you don't stand a chance to grabbing some time to yourself to think. So one of the things that we, going back to purpose, you said how, how important is purpose in keeping one engaged and from burning out? I mean, I think that's the biggest thing you worry about is burning out. Absolutely. I think without a sense of purpose, it can feel like the world is running you instead of your being in the driver's seat. So the watch out for all of us is always, you know, when the workload and demands get high and we start to feel ourselves move to our back foot, how do we come back to the offensive? And so, as I mentioned earlier, the purpose equation of purpose being equal to your contribution plus your passion is a way to help prioritize and triage the workload. So always being looking for, when you think about the projects, activities, tasks, and initiatives you have going on, which ones are both highest value add and also give you an energy boost. Uh, an entrepreneur I had worked with had built a great business from scratch where he had 400 employees and he brags that he takes one week of vacation every other year. Wow. And I'm amazed he's still married. How much vacation do you take and what do you advise your clients to do? I think with vacation and restoration time, uh, it's really important to be intentional around it, right? So I don't judge your client around the, you know, work has a certain pace and flow and it never gets done. I mean, one of the hard realities is, is that the to-do list is never actually ever complete because once you complete one set of things, the next tranche of things emerge. So when it comes to our restoration and to our recharge of our battery, things like taking time off need to be really intentional. So oftentimes I advise clients, hey, at the start of the year, take a look at the calendar and let's block certain parts of your calendar. And again, sometimes that gets overridden because of specific real-time things that might come up in your business. But at least if it's there, you have a better shot of, at taking some time off. I think in, in his case and many entrepreneurs' cases is that when a business grows so big that they're not physically hands-on, they don't know what to do with themselves. And they feel like, uh, what's my purpose now? This thing is like running on its own in a sense. So I think they kind of lose a little bit of purpose themselves then instead of enjoying the fact that it's been so successful and now being more strategic in their time and thinking about strategy. 100% true. And I, and I think, again, as you mentioned, as the business grows, a big mindset shift from, you know, my value is being the one to do it to your value now being a leader of other leaders. How do I empower my team? Actually, the leader taking a vacation gives everybody else an opportunity to, to, to step up. Uh, one of the questions somebody has written to me is what interesting methods, uh, what, different, what different kinds of mentors should an executive be surrounded with? I think mentors and network of support is super important. And so as you think about the different roles that a mentor could play for you, the first question I would have are, as you look out at your network, who, even if you're an expert yourself, Number one, who are the other experts out in your industry or in other industries that you could connect with that keeps you on the cutting edge of your thinking, right? So who are the other experts? And then the other bucket is, who are the people in your life who are like helicopters? So it's easy in our day-to-day -day business to kind of get in the weeds and get tactical, but who are the people who just through that conversation or that mentorship or that colleagueship, that somehow they lift you up like a helicopter and bring you a much broader perspective. 
And then who is somebody that just when you sausage make with them, your best ideas come out, right? So as you think about experts, helicopters, sausage makers, you might build your mentor group or your board of advisors around the different roles that people can play. Uh, and do you also advise them to take it, get advisors that are very frank and, and, and tell them what they think? Because I know a lot of CEOs pick friends or pick people that won't tell them the truth or basically uh, tell them what they want to hear. And, and we see that at the highest levels of leadership in this country. So what do, you, what do you tell them and why this is good for them to get this kind of honest feedback? Yes, I think again, having a mirror, having the mirror person as we think about the different ways we might describe our network, that mirror is absolutely critical because as you move up the ladder, uh, as you mentioned, Mark, feedback becomes more and more limited. People are more timid to give you the feedback. You don't really know how things are going. So uh, having those trusted advisors who can hold up the mirror and say, hey, listen, you know, want to reflect back to you what I'm seeing, observing, and hearing is super critical. Uh, what interesting methods of, C, uh, of a CEO to staff communication can, they, can you share? Sorry, Mark, can you repeat that question? Uh, what interesting methods of the CEO to staff communication can you share? Not typical things, anything that stands out. Um, you know, this question of as a CEO, your one-to-many communications uh, is something to think about. So it's a great question. I think typically uh, folks have done town halls or all hands, those types of formats. I think the, the things that I've seen people do creatively uh, so for example, right now during this pandemic, one of the CEOs I know is doing wonderful podcasts as a way of reaching uh, his organization. Um, I had another CEO who did kind of a what's on my mind. So it wasn't cadenced, it wasn't structured. It was when truly something was on his mind or keeping it, him up at night, he would send that communication out to the workforce and people kind of looked forward to, ooh, we got a what's on his mind email communication. Uh, so I think there's different ways. Another CEO I know, uh, she did uh, now with technology where you can make those fun selfie videos when she went around to different parts of the country to visit different sites for her organization. She would take a, a selfie video with somebody at that location and then they would broadcast that out through the organization. How important is it to have a, a good sense of humor as a CEO? I, I think it's always, you know, the ability to uh, bring both uh, the tone of seriousness when that's needed, right? When you're holding folks accountable, when you're expressing vision or expectations, as much as to your point, knowing when moments of levity and when to hold things lightly and a moment of humor and humanity, how far that can go in terms of being connective with your workforce. Uh, for employees, let's talk about that. How do you maximize the potential of others? You know, as a CEO, you really got to be thinking. Some CEOs are really uh, so self-absorbed that they don't really think about it. But at the end of the day, if you want to create a great company, right, you have to be thinking about how to maximize the potential of others. So what do you, how do you advise your clients about this? I think first and foremost, Mark, as you mentioned there, it's a mindset is the first thing. The mindset that, in fact, maybe when your organization was smaller, you could be more involved in more things. You could control more things. You could make all the decisions. And at some point, if your goal and vision is to scale and grow a bigger company, then the reliance on others, and in fact, the joy in seeing others getting work done through others really needs to be where you shift to. So development and the potential of others is first and foremost in your mindset. And then from there, setting up the structures to make that possible. Have you built a performance management culture where folks are in dialogue with their managers around their development? Do you have a performance management system where development goals are encouraged uh, and folks always looking towards how can others grow in their career? Uh, what do you advise leaders who have heavily vetted someone and three months or uh, three months or in most cases less that they realize they made a cultural mistake it's in affecting others. Right, that is such a tricky one when you start to experience and hear about organ rejection, mm. right? You spend a lot of time recruiting someone, you bring them in and the organ rejection feels very high. 
So I think before uh, immediately letting them go, asking yourself, have I done all I can to help this person on board? You know, was the onboarding plan itself clear around the culture? What can you do to help coach and advise? But I do think at some point if the style, if the person becomes toxic to the culture and is starting to become a net negative, then you have to be okay with the sunk costs of what you've spent on recruiting and still make the right decision for the go forward. How do you enhance your chances of making sure that that doesn't happen? Like really limit it because I remember, uh, was it, um, Le is it Leslie Mayer, whoever the CEO was of Yahoo, and she recruited this guy from Google and he didn't last long and he was like a top star at Google and he didn't last long. You figure as smart as she is and as smart as the recruiter is and everybody, how did they get someone who I think he only lasted like six months? And, and, and often you read in the paper where some CEO they brought in at a major public company, three months later, he's leaving because he's had this disagreement with the board. How do they not know that? So what do you tell your clients in order to enhance those chances that they're not gonna go through something like that? What's the process they should use? I think number one, make sure that culture fit is actually part of the job spec. I think so often when we're specking out a role, we're looking at the capability uh, and it's really about capability plus culture. So that's number one. Number two is uh, who you have as part of the person's interview panel. So uh, have you asked you know, a diverse enough group from within the organization to spend time with this person? Um, especially even folks more junior. Uh, I had a colleague who was telling me recently, I can't, I don't remember the company, but she was giving as an example that she heard of one company who um, actually asked the cab drivers as somebody, as someone was being coming for an interview, they actually had the person driving them as part of it. And they would ask them later, you know, how were you treated? Uh, in the car, or they would ask the front desk or receptionist, tell us what your interaction with that person was like when they first came into the building. So there are creative ways to get a sense of, hey, someone's going to show up well to you, the CEO, but how were they all along the way in the process to other people? That's a, I, I think that's a great comment. I, I one time interviewed a CEO for a company and, I, and the founder wanted to hire me. And I said, no, I want to meet all the people in the organization and I want to get their buy-in because it'll make my job easier if yeah. I get their buy-in. And when I would hire people, I'd have an interview with a whole bunch of people. And I said, that way, when you come in, you don't have to worry about proving yourself that they're already bought in. Right. Uh, how, how can a consultant and or employee set boundaries without getting fired? Because often you hear that clients are calling people on even Christmas Eve and saying, I've got this idea. Can you get out this press release uh, tomorrow about something that we're doing? You're like, oh my God, it's Christmas Eve or it's Sunday morning. Yeah. How, do you, how do you create that boundary without getting fired? Such a great question. And so I always say to folks, uh, how do you hold boundaries, uh, gracious boundaries uh, or boundaries with love and grace, if you will? So the first step is to make sure that you're uh, negotiating the request and not turning down the person. So it's really important, especially with a boss or a client, uh, to just pause for a moment and accept the connection that they're making and to acknowledge what you're hearing. Hey, Mark, it's great to hear from you. I'm hearing your sense of urgency around this. And then share what you're able to do or not do and negotiate that or offer other ideas for how they can meet it. Now, sometimes there are just requests that come in that we absolutely can't say no to. And I would say that's a strategic yes, in which case you say yes, but then you try to then optimize for the how of how you deliver it so it doesn't uh, create such a negative impact. Hi, you've started this consulting business. You told us today you're 15 years old and so forth. What do you attribute your success to? Because to build a consulting practice beyond yourself and get to 25 people, and especially when you're dealing with leaders, is not an easy thing to do. So what, did, what have you learned that you've done right about this business? And what are some of the mistakes you've made that you've learned from? 
I'd say some of the things we've learned uh, on the positive has been that first and foremost, we all try to really walk the talk of that we that we truly want to partner with our clients. And so, you know, I think that folks have even been surprised by that along the way we've turned down business or we've sent business to other firms when the need was described and we realized that's not our sweet spot or we're really not the right people to do that. And so I think over time, our clients have come to appreciate that we hear every need with their ROI and investment in mind. And we're only going to agree to do it if we feel like we can deliver results with them in a strategic partnership way. So we've gotten good feedback from our clients that they never feel like it's about the sale, but that they really feel like we care about their business to the point where I literally many times have said, you know, given what you're describing, that sounds more like this kind of work or this shop actually has that particular expertise. Let me put you in touch with them. Which is great. And what's the biggest mistake you've made and you learned from it? I think the biggest mistake made is, you know, we're still trying to figure out infrastructure and how to align that with demand. And so uh, my co-founder and I started very scrappy. We both tend to run very lean. And so I think the team would always tell you that our resources are always trying to keep up with demand. Uh, and that has put strain sometimes on the team and on myself. And so um, that's been a big watch out. And the second is, like we've talked about today, I think as just an entrepreneur, co-founder myself, the temptation to always wanna do it myself is always there. And so I have the bad habit, I think you could ask my team of swooping in like a seagull and sort of messing things up when really sometimes I just need to get out of the way. Well, what, what was the first thing you did when they shut down the country? What did you tell your own people and tell your clients? You know, Because I'm sure people went super panic about this. And, and, and your own clients, are, your own people are probably thinking, man, am I gonna have a job? Uh, you know, how long this thing lasts? What if all our clients cancel these contracts or, or put them on pause? So how did you handle that? And what did you advise your own clients? So right when things were really, you know, uh, coming to the forefront on that in March, Mark, we immediately sent out a communication and agreed as a leadership team that number one, safety was going to come first. You know, so people were going to still be ahead of profits. And so we let the team know that we asked everyone to please stop all travel, to stop all client face-to-face uh, -face interaction. We asked the team to move everything to a virtual uh, work from home situation. We then had to message that to all of our top clients and make sure that they were in alignment and that you know we were not comfortable even if they were still open. In some cases, we had clients who were still open at a time that we were closing. And so we did have to, you know, there were many days where I felt like I just was on one call after another checking in on where people were and to communicate the position of our firm. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there were the weeks of then working with our finance lead around collections and how would we diplomatically try to figure out if there were any uh, issues on the finance or cash side. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a scary thing. Uh, do you have an opinion about how to, how to uh, recognize entrepreneurial characteristics in young people, teenagers, or adolescents? I think that entrepreneurial, uh, it's so great to see, right, when you meet somebody and you can feel a fire in the belly. You can feel kind of a vitality that they have, an intellectual curiosity. So I think whenever any of us are in the presence of that, where I think part of why the purpose equation, half of that equation is passion and inspiration, is that when we see another person get energized and excited and working on something, even when they're not told to work on it, there's a magic there. And to the extent all of us on this call today who have the good fortune of coaching, mentoring, or leading others, how do we help ignite that fire in somebody and take them to the next level? Well, and a lot of organizations say they want people who are entrepreneurial, but then they snuff that out uh, when they get there. How do entrepreneurs mentally prepare themselves best for dealing with failures, small and large, not just successes? Right. It's such a great question that I think is part of that entrepreneurial edge. There is a love of innovation and trying new things. And so we have to marry that with uh, learning agility 
And um, there's a term in Zen Buddhism, which I really love called the beginner's mind. And, and the whole idea of a beginner's mind is that even when we are masters ourselves, how do we approach our work with the wonder, with the excitement of, that a beginner has at the start of anything? And so that then when failures come, you know, we hold ourselves with some self-compassion. We have our network we can turn to to help us get back on the bike or get back on the horse. And then how do we take those learnings uh, with some openness and say, that's only going to make me better and stronger? So this is my final question for you. Uh, you're obviously a big reader as well. And I wondered, what books do you recommend with podcasts? Uh, with magazines, like I love the Harvard Business Review and Wired and Inc. and Fast Company, and I like Malcolm Gladwell, and I like, uh, I really like Adam Grant uh, from Wharton and Angela Duckworth. So who are some of the folks that you read that you think others would really benefit from? Could be books, magazines, podcasts. I um so as I think about uh, what I recommend to folks, so I love uh, Patrick Lencioni's work. So for folks who are uh, really curious about the best of team dynamics and team structures, uh, Pat Lencioni and his table group has, I think, some of the best thinking on how to build a high-functioning and effective team. And in fact, of his books, my absolute favorite is called The Advantage. And almost every leader I work with, I end up getting them a copy of The Advantage to say, hey, if you want to refresh on your team structures, your team meetings, uh, how to get the most out of a team, make sure you read this. I also love Ram Sharam's book, The Leadership Pipeline. So as folks are thinking about the transition from individual contributor to becoming a leader of people, to then becoming a functional leader, to then becoming an enterprise leader, I think that book is one of the best at delineating what each of those passage turns looks like and what you need to change in your mindset and in your skill box to do that. Um, and then finally, Mark, for those who are looking for a deeper spiritual uh, human development, uh, in, in my book, I allude to a lot of Buddhist concepts, Eastern philosophies. Right now, I'm reading a lot of uh, a Buddhist nun called Pima Chodron. Um, and I'm, I'm reading a book right now written by her called Start Where You Are. So how do we really accept the present moment, no matter what that situation is? with a more open heart and with more grace. And so that's my own personal work. And I'm finding her work to be incredibly supportive and illuminating at this time. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. And uh, I thank everybody for joining us today. And I really enjoyed getting a chance to speak to you. And I really enjoyed your book. I hope others will get it as well. Mark, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great rest of your weekend, and I look forward to staying in contact. Sounds great. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Mm -hmm.